Welcome to The Atlantic Interview. I'm Jeffrey Goldberg, the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic. Bill and Melinda Gates are now more than 20 years into a project in which they're trying to give away all of the money that Bill made when he founded and grew Microsoft into one of the world's largest corporations. They still have billions of dollars to go, but they've already spent billions working against malaria and other infectious diseases, helping to improve schools and trying to alleviate extreme poverty. Every year, Bill and Melinda Gates write a letter to the public about their projects, and this year the letter is, even for them, unusually optimistic. But, of course, I'm judging that against my pessimism. I've spoken to Bill Gates repeatedly in the past, and and I bring my pessimism to his optimistic view, and I try to convince him that he's wrong to be so optimistic, uh, and he tries to convince me to be a little bit brighter about the world. You know, if you go back in time, the primary thing we had to do was try and grow enough food and there were regular famines and, you know, high levels of violence and low levels of literacy. You know, now the progress in terms of tools of health, whether it's in, in rich countries or uh, all other countries, has been very phenomenal. You know, our awareness of the gap that 5 million children still die before the age of 5, you know, that's horrific. So there's nothing to be complacent about. So being an optimist isn't you know, saying we don't need to solve problems, but human systems, uh, including science and markets and governments and philanthropy, have improved the key objective measures I think people would agree on. Lifespan, childhood health, literacy. You know, most people, whether in Africa or, you know, women or people who are gay or, you know, most groups wouldn't think of time as making things worse for them. Uh, you know, they wouldn't want to go back to the 1950s. Right. I mean, let me just, let me press you here on another metric, freedom uh, and the advance of the liberal order. Surely you must have some anxiety about what no longer seems to be the inexorable progress of the liberal democratic order, though. Well, none of these positive measures is inexorable. If you get war, uh, that is the most dramatic way of driving these figures backwards. You know, the fact that some people are questioning international cooperation or, you know, feeling like the elite, you know, have been too focused on international issues, you know, that from time to time you're going to elect uh, politicians who ask those questions. Right. We're a humanitarian nation. But the legacy of the interventions will be weakness, confusion, and disarray. My foreign policy will always put the interests of the American people and American security above all else. They're not unfair questions, so you have to be ready to answer them and you know, explain why even in a context, say, in the U.S., of just looking at the benefits to the U.S., do you still want to fund research to prevent pandemics? Do you still want to create stability in Africa? Do you want right. to build relationships uh, in a better way than, say, the Chinese will right. with those countries? Or do you want to disappear and deal with it You know, when it hits the borders? Certainly, post-World War II, We've been the leader in building those alliances and building the trade, which, you know, and overall, if you look at it as a black and white question, has been incredibly beneficial. Why does the expression America first scare you? 
Well, it in the short run, you can always try and drive a harder bargain. But the long-term benefit of trusting each other is a pretty gigantic thing. And, you know, people have been able to count on the U.S. to, you know, try and make the trade system better and try and work together on security issues so that, on balance, less resources have to be put in that direction. And part of the reason the the liberal system and the U.S. uh, economic growth has been so good is because of that engagement in the world. And if we, you know, just thought short-term about those relationships, we wouldn't be where we are today. Did the elites, of which you are a proud member, uh, did, did they drift away too far away from a kind of patriotic particularism that set off a reaction? No, I mean, every policy you have to look at individually. You know, should we have helped in the HIV crisis? And to meet a severe and urgent crisis abroad tonight, I propose the emergency plan for AIDS relief. A work of mercy beyond all current international efforts to help the people of Africa. That one on a bipartisan basis where people have been out to see the work or they look at the numbers. You know, that was PEPFAR, created by President Bush, but supported by both parties. You know, people are very enthused about it. But actually, the you know, that's one where the indirect benefits over time, if those lives don't matter at all, I still think it it works. But that one is the longest term in terms of how over time, Africa becomes more stable and self-sufficient. And yet, that one, you know, gets very strong marks. Polio eradication, where we've got rotary, that one gets very strong marks. So, historically, aid was a lot about geopolitics, and a lot of it was given to inept governments without an expectation would be well spent. The beauty of being largely out of a Cold War context is that aid has been more in a measured you know, high-impact type framework, particularly in areas like health and agriculture. And, you know, so I think we're ready for very tough questioning. And, you know, you could say we should always be ready for it. You know, most of the voting public thinks the that we're spending 10% or 20% of the budget on, on foreign aid. And so and the fact we're spending less than 1%, uh, they find pretty surprising. You know, the Europeans are three times more generous, right. uh, you know, you, which is great. They're, they're helping to solve a lot of these problems, you know, including getting vaccines out to all the world's children. Do, do you think that if you manage to convince Donald Trump to go with you on a trip to some of the sites where this work is being done, do you think you could convince him that he's wrong? It's not so much being wrong as really digging in and seeing these things. Uh, both Melinda and I have had a chance to go with Democratic and Republican members of Congress and go over and see health activities and agricultural activities. You know, Senator Graham has actually been the uh, best organizers of those trips. And, uh, you know, absolutely senators, uh, particularly if their spouse is with them when they go, uh, <laughs> say, wow, uh, this is pretty fundamental. And, Per person out here, very small amounts of money can uplift smallholder farmers so that they can afford school fees and get livestock, improve the diet. And, you know, that's what's going to 
let these countries become self-sufficient in the same way that you know India's becoming self-sufficient and Taiwan, South Korea, uh, you know, have been miracles and actually now contribute to foreign aid. About a year ago, when I interviewed you and Warren Buffett together, you were both optimistic and both sort of competing to be uh, uh, more optimistic. One of the things you said to me was that you thought that in the end, and this is, remember, this is about a month after the inauguration of Donald Trump, you thought in the end, the truth would triumph because uh, the world works through empiricism. Um, you can't be successful in science. You can't be successful in the markets if you don't um, re uh, do a realistic assessment of accurate data. Um, what's your feeling about this a, a year later? Do you think um, the, the the truth will will still out, particularly in in the political discussion around some of the technocratic issues that you're talking about? The model is not that individual voters, you know, study the U.S. budget and know it in detail uh, or that they you know, understand the nature of the science and climate change in detail. Uh, you know, people rely on experts in, in various ways. And, you know, so something like how do we make the U.S. healthcare system more efficient? You know, how do we make safety net programs uh, more more efficient. You know, the broad public's going to respond to the leaders who, you know, hired the experts and really dig into these things. So what's the issue with experts these days? Because what you're saying is that is that it's not that the science isn't there, it's that the people don't trust the interpreters of the science to be leveling with them. What what do you think happened in society that led that to led led so many people to question expertise? Well, you know, during Brexit, somebody did say, <laughs> we've had enough of experts. Uh, and, you know, there is a bit of a bias that the more you learn about a topic, the more important you think that topic is. And, you know, so if you work on aircraft carriers and how they can be made cooler, <laughs> you know, the idea that when you go to testify, you'll say, no, we really need vaccines, not aircraft uh, carriers, you know, it the experts do get engaged in their topics and having, you know, people step back and look at these trade-offs requires a special kind of expertise. And I admit the figures about trust, whether it's trust in the Congress or trust in the media going down, uh, you know, that is a concern to me. Most political things do cycle around. So that, you know, that can be self self-correcting. The issue of how we get trust to go back the other way, you know, so that people who have advice about U.S. medical costs or safety net systems, you know, aren't viewed as, as being purely an advocate, that's something we should contemplate. Um, I, I think it's solvable, but it is, it is hurting us right now that the number of people with deep expertise who are viewed as neutral by both sides is is quite low. How would you solve for that? What is the thing that's that's happening that you can actually solve? Well, as I said, this is an area where I I think we do need to be creative. So I don't, you know, off the top of my head, have have the solution to it. Do you know anybody you know, who's doing good it. work on that? Well, 
you know, there are people who are saying that the academics have allowed themselves to be associated too much with one side or the other and figuring out where that's not legitimate and debunking it and where it is legitimate and correcting it. Uh, do you, you think know, it's the, true? I mean, do you think, I mean, we, we know you what. Have to dig, you have to dig into some particular thing. Well, voting, uh, I mean, voting uh, records and party affiliation of academics and the liberal arts, or we, we know what those are. They lean overwhelmingly in one direction. I mean, so there is data there for you already. True, but then you have that that alone shouldn't be damning. You should dig into does that infect the actual recommendations that get made in those areas? And, uh, you know, if, if, if people want a whole new set of intellectuals that they feel come at it in a fair way, that's fine too. You know, there's no shortage of people with IQ that can be brought in. We put together a thing called the poverty panel, quite a range of experts. And I, I didn't ask their party affiliations, but these are people who look at poverty in different ways and got them to do a lot of site visits and have a bunch of foundations who are considering working in the area, you know, be inspired by that night. You know, Melinda and I went out to some visits, which we mentioned in the annual letter and that was to build a consensus independent of uh, political affiliation right. about what what government policies or what the role of philanthropy is in poverty in the US today something in your in your letter this year uh just reinforces uh, an impression i've gotten from you in the past which is that um education is a source of some frustration for you your ability to move the needle on certain issues related to education um, is uh, less significant or, 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 or it's, it's just a more troublesome issue than moving the needle on certain uh, health metrics. Um, can you talk about that a little bit and, and where you've been most frustrated? Well, I, I wouldn't put such a negative polar on it. Now you're the talking specific, to Eeyore over here. You know, you got to remember. <laughs> the specific areas we funded, like high-quality charters, or small schools, or we help teachers have more time to learn from each other, so-called peer evaluation. When we went in and did those in an intense way, we got very good results, and it's always gratifying to see. And there's literally uh, millions of students that have benefited from cases we've gone in and done interventions. But the super tough question of did these interventions stay over the long term when the philanthropic funding disappeared, and did they spread out to other parts of the school system, that test ha has not been met, whereas in global health, uh, that test has been met. That's why you know, in the year 2000, over 10 million die, in the year 2016, less than 5 million die. But you know, per dollar we've spent, we've improved student outcomes quite a lot. Scaling is hard because Typically, when you do pilot studies, you get more energetic participants. You know, that's true with charter schools where even the act of entering the lottery uh, selects for a parent who is more engaged in a child's education. And so, you know, figuring out what can, what's, can be made popular at scale uh, and achieves agreed upon improved outcome it's just it is harder in education so education is harder 
we're super glad we picked education. You know, we're we're not in any way uh, going to give up on education. If there was one thing, if you had a magic wand and you could change one thing about education, and I, I mean this in the broadest sense, uh, the level of family engagement, teachers unions, pick your problem. Uh, what would be the one thing that would unlock uh, more success in the U.S. education system? Well, the ideal is that the students model that by engaging in something fairly abstract and disconnected, like you know, writing an essay or figuring out how to solve for X and Y, will lead to them having a career that, in terms of you know, freedom and rewarding them economically that it's to a huge degree in their self-interest to engage in those things. So that's parental? No, no, that's at the student level. Parental no, is still indirect. The ideal... But how are the students going to develop that ex nihilo? I mean, how, do you, how does that come about? Well, you can use teachers, you can use parents, you can use mentors, but the gold standard is, is the level of conscientiousness that that student engages in, which is a little bit of an unnatural thing. I mean, the biggest learning out of our peer-to-peer teacher engagement was that the way you create energy-level interactivity in the class is the biggest differentiator of the really excellent teacher, top 5% versus that average teacher. Just presenting all the material properly You know, lots of teachers do that very well, but unless they're challenging the students, giving them problems that are right at the edge of their competence so that they're struggling with those problems and then feeling a a sense of achievement against those problems, you know, a personal connection with the teacher and and that Mm -hmm. interactivity, that's an incredible thing. So, you know, if you could change one thing, you would change the student's mindset. Right. Uh, let me move to health. Um, one of your worries is uh, the the problem of pandemics and, and specifically the delta between what the threat looks like in a globalized world and and our level of preparedness for that. Talk about your level of worry at the moment. Well, when you have these low probability events that happen very rarely but what would be a, by the way what would be an example of a low probability event in this in this like an aerosolized ebola or something what are you referring yeah, to yeah 1918 flu okay it's the 100th anniversary that had that was the last global pandemic that created you know in that case 50 million excess deaths you know more people died that year than died during the active years of world war one right uh now we've had locally Ebola, you know, in, in three countries and Zika in parts of, of lots of countries. But the US itself hasn't had uh, anything gigantic. You know, the HIV epidemic hit certain subpopulations and that was horrific. But because we move around so much, the quick the speed at which would spread because of air travel is far faster than 1918. In fact, one of the problems in 1918 uh, was bad luck, was you had a lot of soldiers returning home. But that amount of flying around, you know, wasn't 5% of what it is now. Right. Now, we are, we do have better nutrition in general, and we have more 
health facilities, but the health facilities become very overloaded. And so a pandemic in terms of, you know, panic and supply chains and how do you implement quarantines, uh, there's very little thought that's gone into it. You know, even when Ebola broke out, which moved fairly slowly, you know, the world at large essentially got lucky that it wasn't much worse than it was. Describe the degree to which the U.S. is not ready in as um, specific a terms as possible. We'd be very, you know, the world would rather have a pandemic hit here because even though we're not fully prepared, we have more resources. The CDC is, is the best in the world. The biomedical research here is the best in the world. The U.S. would isn't as ready as it should be, but it's as ready as any country in the world is. And so the, you know, the most dangerous scenario is where something breaks out somewhere else in the world and starts to spread and then is, is coming into the U.S. And so you have the whole notion of what quarantine you're doing, who's orchestrating the intervention, the tools, and the personnel. And as we saw in Ebola, the idea of if you people went over there and volunteered, would you let them come back? And what should, you know, should you have plane flights continue to be able to move back and forth? Right. You know, just doing uh, essentially a war game on this alone would be a huge advance then because they'd, you'd understand a lot of a lot of what's missing. Donald Trump, of course, was uh, hugely critical of President Obama's response to Ebola, talked about um, much more uh, harsh or at least um, emotionally satisfying responses uh, to Ebola. I'm, I'm very curious about you right now. Um, in your annual letter, your wife, Melinda, is critical of the president for the way he treats women, talks about women. And I assume you endorse that critique. Uh, but I'm, I'm surprised at the measured way you talk about a president who so far at least has been anti-science, anti-expertise, and has taken positions on matters related to science and the spread of disease that I, I know uh, you don't agree with. What, what, what limits your criticism here? Yeah, well, first of all, I, I don't think I'm aware of specific things that Trump said about the Ebola epidemic. But um, when he was a private citizen, he, he called for no, yeah, I, that kind of quarantine. I, 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 yeah. Because a lot of people are fleeing West Africa and they're coming here because they want to get away from Ebola. Now, how many of those people have Ebola? But we should end flights coming in from West Africa and Liberia. You know, if you look at the AIDS epidemic, that type of quarantine is, is counterproductive. There actually would be some types of scenarios where a quarantine would make sense. Sure. But it's, you know, these things are complex. And anyway, the, the U.S. government is still the biggest giver of foreign aid. You know, the Congress uh, chose not to make any cuts in that. I hope that continues to be the case. Just a 10% cut would lead to 5 million additional deaths. So that's an epidemic that really hangs in the balance. Unless we stay generous and invent new tools, it's going to go back to peak levels of, of deaths, which would be horrific and very much against the kind of solidarity that the U.S. has invested. But, you know, on the research side and the foreign aid side, those priorities have been maintained. Uh, 
and you know we hope they continue to be maintained. Uh, we're interested in those practical outcomes, and you know we're working you know with any politician we can. Do you feel like you have an open door to this White House? Well, I certainly, yeah, I have no problem. You know, I've met with McMaster. I've met with most of the top uh, administrative people. Because we're a partner with the U.S. government on polio and HIV and malaria, you know, we're trying to create as much dialogue as we can, you know, including pandemic preparedness, including helping to stabilize these countries. And, you know, foreign aid from the U.S., you know, reached its low point in in the year 1999. Since then, it went up a lot under Bush, and then it's not changed much. Uh, I'm going to make an observation that requires no response uh, from you, and I'm and I and there's no value judgment here. But I think your the sure sign of of your innately optimistic nature is that you believe that you can work with the Trump administration, and that the Trump administration has a learning curve and will play a positive role in some of the issues that you uh, you believe in. Well, being able to advocate for continued HIV spending, I'm not someone who feels I'm going to refuse to meet with the administration because they've done things I disagree with uh, and not go and, and talk about the things like PEPFAR or you know, malaria or polio, uh, I'm going to go to those meetings and make the case. Uh, you know, if there was some huge cut in those things, yes, it, it might make sense to hold, hold one's breath and turn blue for the next three years. <laughs> Honestly, that you could get in that situation. But in terms of the key things that our foundation has expertise on, we've chosen, and I think for good reasons, to go to those meetings and explain, you know, why it's great the U.S. spends $30 billion a year and why it's great it has the biggest health research budget, which is, along with our foundation, the biggest funder for an HIV vaccine. Right. Uh, Final question for you. According to various reports, you're no longer the world's richest man. Is that something you ever cared about? Well, would, certainly my goal of uh, that Melinda and I have of giving virtual all our money away uh, is incompatible with being on some risk list of rich people. So go faster. Will, <laughs> you better go we faster. We will fall down. Yeah, we haven't been doing a good enough job. Uh, you should be down at 300 by now. Well, you know, our the, the team we have that invests the money uh, has done a very good job. And, you know, the stock market's been rather... That's it. Uh, you need to get crappy investors. Eb- That's what you need. Eb- ebulent. <laughs> uh, but, you know, if I hadn't given away money, I'd still be the top of that list. And so, you know, we are... You know, spending five billion a year now, a big part of that, uh, about half of that comes from Warren Buffett's generosity. Right. Uh, and we'll have him on the on the podcast next. Bill Gates, thank you very much for being with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. The Atlantic interview is produced by Diana Douglas and Kevin Townsend with production help from Kim Lau and Abdullah Fayyad. You can find Bill and Melinda Gates's letter at GatesLetter.com. If you like this podcast, subscribe and rate us. I'm Jeffrey Goldberg, the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic, and I'll see you next week.